57 consecutive nights, London endured the terrible pounding of bombs and explosions night after night. In a mere few months' time, the air force of the German military would reduce London to a rubble heap. Before the battle and speaking to the House of Commons, Winston Churchill would say this, Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duty and so bear ourselves that if the British Commonwealth and empire lasts for a thousand years, men will still say this was our finest hour. And it was their finest hour. As the people of Britain were characterized by standing firm, they didn't surrender. Now, just as Great Britain, so Christians, you and I, are in a battle. And in some sense, are, stand, are called to stand firm against our enemies. Christ calls us to stand firm, to not waver, to not surrender, to keep going, to remain steady in him. And I see that in verse 1 of the text we just read. Chapter 4, Philippians 4, verse 1 which marks actually the end of our section this morning. So if you haven't turned there already, please turn to Philippians chapter 3 or 4. We're on the break. So just to lay out a little bit of context, uh, chapter 3, Paul has been using his own story to illustrate that righteousness is not gained through law-keeping, but instead it is gained through the imputation of Christ's righteousness, an alien righteousness. Paul then shares his ultimate goal. What is it? To know Christ and the power of his resurrection and sharing in his sufferings. Paul continues in verses 12 through 16 saying he hasn't reached his goal. Instead, he is pursuing it, straining ahead in the Christian life. Paul's one thing, the relentless pursuit of his life, was to pursue the prize of knowing Christ finally And fully, which is a mark, he says, of Christian maturity. Verse 15 let those who are mature think this way. In the verses we're considering this morning, verse 17 through chapter 4, verse 1, Paul continues by giving two ways to live, contrasting the difference between those who oppose Paul and those who are like Paul those who set their minds on heavenly things and those who set their minds on earthly things. And he concludes with verse 1 of chapter 4. Let's read it again. He says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So a couple of observations before we jump in. I think this will lay a little bit of a foundation for where we're going to go this morning. First, I'm struck by all the terms of affection. I hope you see it in verse 1. Paul loads tons of emotion into this verse, showing how he loves the Philippians. He says, my brothers, whom I love, long for, my joy and crown. And then he repeats at the end, my beloved. And this shows Paul's deep affection for the Philippians, his feelings and concerns for them. It's a sense of homesickness. If you've ever been away from your wife and kids or your family, and uh, you long to be back with them. That longing is the sense that Paul has here. They are his crown and joy. Uh, In some sense, uh, my going out from 
Eden. I am a, a crown of your ministry in me. And so the same is true of the Philippians for Paul. Even now they are a source of honor and joy for him. Now Paul's love then is the backdrop for his concern for them to stand firm, to stand fast. Love strengthens it. Now there's another observation I want to draw your attention to before we uh, go in deep is this. Glance down at verse 20. It's a familiar phrase. Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. And so Paul says, they stand firm as citizens of heaven. Now this would be a familiar concept for the Philippians in the first century for reasons we can understand, but maybe we don't get it fully. Uh, Philippi as a Roman colony would have had a special place in the empire. Though it's hundreds of miles away from Rome, they were, many of the citizens, citizens of Rome. And probably they were proud of their citizenship, something I think even Paul would relate to. They had an identity wrapped up, wrapped up in a far-off city that represents, that's represented in their daily life in Philippi. So Paul uses that concept to introduce dual citizenship. In effect, Paul is saying that they are a colony of heaven as they live on earth. They are ambassadors for this commonwealth, and their conduct should reflect this allegiance. Not their allegiance to Rome, but their allegiance to high heaven. And we'll discover as citizens of heaven, we have a distinct conduct and a distinct destiny from the world. And God calls them to stand firm. And this is true, I think, of all Christians. We are all citizens of heaven. My aim this morning is to bolster your faith in the gospel. That as you go about this week, you are able this week to stand firm. One of the clearest signs of Christian maturity is that believers stand firm against whatever they face with a quiet confidence and joy and hope. And that's what I want for you. That whatever you are facing, whether it's job loss, tough marriage, cancer, sickness, uh, sick of your fight with sin, whatever you are facing, I believe that there's hope in this passage for you to stand firm in it. So Paul's passionate plea for the Philippians is that they stand firm as citizens of the kingdom of God. So as citizens of heaven, here it is, we stand firm in the Lord. The question is, how? How do we do it? Because if we're honest, we need help. Um, and that's what Paul gives us this morning in these few verses. Paul furnishes three certainties that will bolster you as you stand firm. Three certainties. Number one, you are not alone. Number two, you are no longer enemies. And number three, you are not hopeless. So I want to look at each one of those in turn. Number one, you are not alone. I see that in verse 17. Verse 17. The point that I want us to see is how the Christian life is not a solo mission. You and I are not little James Bonds or Jason Bournes going about the Christian life. We need other people. We need our brothers and sisters. In fact, they are a gift to us. And this is the certainty I gather from verse 17. Paul says, verse 17, brothers join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So to, to stand firm, 
Paul says the Philippians must imitate him. Such things are found elsewhere in Paul. For instance, to Corinth, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Here, however, he words the phrase in such a way to emphasize the corporate nature of our walk and the togetherness of following godly leaders. This is something we do together. He wants it to be a community, church-wide effort. Following Paul's example is something we do with one another, together. So we are to join together following Paul. So we shouldn't miss the plural language, and it's something you cannot miss in the originals. Well, what does it mean to follow Paul? I've thought about the Gatorade commercials of the 90s with the greatest basketball player of all time, Michael Jordan. Of course, I know it's dated, but there were those commercials, and what was the slogan? Be like Mike. Yeah, so Paul says here, be like Paul. Well, how? How to be like Paul? What is Paul doing? Well, Philippians really gives us a roadmap. Chapter 1, verse 24, 21, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul, throughout the letter, is languishing in prison, so he is, his rejoicing, there's joy, rejoicing, all throughout the letter, is an example to us that despite our circumstances, we are called to rejoice. And in our context, Paul was one who counted everything loss compared to knowing Christ. He pursued Christ radically, setting aside any confidence in himself and his righteousness, and instead pressing on to pursue an uncompromising Christ-centered life. Like anyone who's played a sport or been an apprentice, that's the do as I do in sports or in work. Paul says, follow me. That's why he can say a few verses later in Philippians 4, 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. So I remember uh, my coach in basketball told me in the offseason, you know what you need to do? You need to find someone who is a better basketball player than you and you need to just play them one-on-one all offseason. And sure enough, I did that. Why? Because you learn from them. You follow their example, and it makes you a better basketball player. Now, beyond himself, Paul encourages us to keep our eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So Paul says, in us, meaning probably his company, others with him, whether it's Timothy, Epaphroditus, Silas, his company has set a pattern. They model for the Philippians, a life worthy of the gospel by how they conducted themselves. When Paul instructs the Philippians to be on the lookout for those who follow Paul's example, presumably he means those who are sitting in the pews, those who are around you in their own church. So literally take notice of the godly men and women sitting next to you. So when you go to a national park or when you go to on, do some hike or an adventurous trip, it's sometimes good to have a guide or a scout. And you rely on that guide to know the way or to help you navigate when there's difficult uh, spots. In a similar way, believers are to find and follow mature Christians to help navigate the Christian life. 
Using a memorable analogy from our chapter and that of Hebrews 12, it's, it's like running. Um, he says, keep running, but he also says, you can't do it alone. So while I was here at Eden, I began to ra- run half marathons with my dad, who's here. And uh, we ran a few half marathons, and then we were running one in northern Wisconsin, and my dad decided he was going to up the game and go to the full marathon. Well, that was fine, except uh, they started in different spots. And so for the first time, I was running a half marathon by myself. And uh, when the going got rough, and it did on that particular race, um, I didn't have him to encourage me. And so instead, I just fixed my eyes on a random stranger who I thought was running a good pace, the pace that I wanted to go. And I just kept with them. The whole, I mean, was, even through the pain, I kept with that runner. I think that's what Paul's saying here. Fix your eyes on a pace setter, a godly pace setter, and keep running. Now think on it, and I think you'll see that this presupposes that you walk humbly with other Christians. Now walking is here is really talking about your everyday life, and what it highlights then is that you cannot do the Christian life alone. You must humbly follow someone, a godly, mature believer. And that's the truth. That's the foundation that bolsters your faith in order to stand firm. And that is that God has given us each other and you are not alone. This is one of the reasons that in-person worship, face-to-face fellowship is so important. I know I'm speaking to the choir, but you need to rub shoulders with other believers. You already have a wonderful network at Eden to help you stand firm against whatever you're facing today. You know, even though Winston Churchill said that famous line about the Battle of Britain, that it was won by a few, if you study it closely, you can quickly learn that it was actually a network of hundreds and thousands of civilians and soldiers. Together they stood firm. And you have that similar network here at Eden. The question is, are you taking advantage of it? Now, not to belabor it, but before going to point two, just have a few questions to consider. Number one, who are you following today? So this is a good one for kids and students who are here. The question is, who are you looking up to? Who do you most want to be like someday? And ask yourself, is he or she modeling the character of Christ? Modeling the character of Jesus? Do they look like Paul or the godly men and women in your church Because there's a warning in our text, and that is if you're not following them, you're on a dangerous path. If you mostly want to be like someone who does not love Christ. Now, it certainly doesn't mean that you can't be friends with an unbeliever. It's not what Paul is talking about. But the question is, who is the model for your life? Because you can't idolize the ungodly and expect to be a mature believer. Certainly the same is true for adults, but the question maybe I want us to consider is does our life serve as a pattern of godliness for others to follow? Are we displaying a life worth imitating? Are we letting people in close enough to imitate? Am I providing a godly example of radically pursuing Christ? Because the truth is others are watching and they are imitating. Now, so I have two daughters uh, Lily, who's almost three, and then Ginny, who today she turns one. 
This is her birthday today. And uh, a few weeks ago, we were taking a walk, and sometimes Lily wants to walk with her own stroller. And so I had the stroller with Ginny in it, and then she had her stroller with her baby doll in it. So we're walking, and she's kind of lagging behind. We're walking, and I look back to check to see if she's doing okay, and I see her also look back to check <laughs> to see if somebody behind her is doing okay. So sure enough, I'm walking, and now I move to one hand, the one-hand stroller push. And I look over, and there's Lily, one hand in it. Um, then I go, you know, to check on Ginny, and sure enough, Lily goes and checks on her baby doll. Kids follow the example they see in us. And that's true of other Christians. Are they, when they see you, can they mimic you, imitate you, and is the result godly life? That's a question for us to consider. Last, are you going about the Christian life alone? Are you around brothers and sisters, or do you keep things close to the chest? So I've seen this play out in two ways. One, internal isolation. That is, that this is someone who keeps their life with Christ private, their struggle secret, their appearances up. And as a result, they miss the joy and the aid of other Christians. Are you afraid to let others in? The other one is physical isolation. You know, someone will come to me as a pastor and say, no, I'm, I'm lonely, I'm depressed, I'm struggling with this or that. Can you help me? You know, and my first thought is, well, I haven't seen you at church, home group, Wednesday nights. I haven't seen you around at all. It doesn't mean necessarily that being around will solve everything instantly. But presence matters. Help starts by being with our brothers and sisters, physically with them. Because remember, you cannot walk alone. And the good news is that you don't have to. Mature Christians don't walk alone. You know, for some reason I've thought, this is a change in my thinking, we sometimes think that a mature believer is one who can do it alone. But that couldn't be farther from the truth. A mature Christian is one who knows he can't or she can't do it alone. So Paul says, follow me. And we should all be following someone. <clears throat> so I want to encourage you this afternoon to pick up the phone. Text someone, call someone, and say, hey, can I meet? And whatever you're going through, when you're meeting with them, just say, you know, here's the situation. What would you do if you were facing the same thing? All right, that's number one. You are not alone. And I think that's the first way that Paul helps us stand firm. And number two is found in verses 18 and 19, and that is you are no longer enemies. No longer enemies. Look carefully at verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. What Paul is doing is making a direct contrast with verse 17. Walk this way, for many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So part of standing firm, then, is that we walk uh, in a world um, that is filled with those who oppose Christ. And there are many of them. 
And this fits with what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 13. The gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. Now this should not come as a surprise to us, but it also shouldn't leave us indifferent. Look how it affects Paul. Now I tell you, even with tears. Now we're not entirely sure who Paul is referring to here, but... What is certain is that their mindset and lifestyle is at odds with Paul. They are walking as enemies of Christ, and whoever they are, instead of contempt or scorn, Paul weeps with compassion for them. Now, for some of you, this hits really close to home. That is, you know the many. You have a name that goes with the many. Now, why does Paul weep for them? Well, I think it's because... Paul personally knew some of them. At some point, they were claiming to be Christians, but no longer. And often you find yourself, and we find ourselves weeping like Paul for the many. I want to encourage you, you're not alone even in that. God hears your prayers and you have your brothers and sisters, and he knows, God knows and sees your pain. So keep praying through the tears. Now, Paul's broader point is a sharp contrast, right? If you're a believer here this morning, your life should be then characterized by peace, peace with God, friendship with him, through, made possible through the cross of his son, Jesus Christ. It is by the power of the cross that you have peace with God this morning. So when's the last time we sat and wondered the fact that we are at peace with our maker? In him you have obtained access by faith. You can know him and call him friend. You are now a part of his family. Isaiah says, the prophet says, the punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. In love he adopted you as his sons and daughters. And if you hear one truth this morning, hear this. You are no longer an enemy. You are at peace with your maker. He isn't out to get you. He's not against you. No, he loves you. You are his. He is for you. Again, for kids here, if there are kids still in here, it's the song, Jesus Loves Me. It just doesn't get old. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Yes, Jesus loves me. And he loves you, Christian. Now, if you're here and you haven't trusted Christ, do you see what this verse says about you? It doesn't hold any punches. You are an enemy of the living God. The Bible doesn't give us a third category. Either you are an enemy, an enemy or you are at peace on God's terms. And the Bible says to you, you deserve what we'll look at next, eternal punishment and separation from him. You are an enemy deserving his wrath. And yet, ironically, what's the object of their disdain? The very thing that can save them. The object of these individuals' disdain is the very thing that can save them, the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's it's the very thing that can save you too. The cross of Jesus Christ made a way to remove this wrath. Christ took the punishment you deserve, unbeliever died a cruel cross and rose again so that you can believe in him and have eternal life. Will you turn to him 
today and away from the world's lies, which we're going to read about in just a minute. Eugene Peterson said the first step to coming to Christ is realizing the lies of the world. Well, you're about to see that in our text this morning. Well, I love how Paul challenges his readers to stand firm. He says, you're no longer enemies, so you don't have to live like it. I mean, Paul shows the nature of their walk in the next few verses in hopes that we will, as Christians, avoid these pitfalls and stand firm instead. And the average person does not think in terms of verse 19, but this verse accurately describes a person outside of Christ. Now look what Paul says in verse 19. Their end, speaking of these enemies, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and, their glory in, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Now, number one, uh, their destiny is destruction. Their destiny is destruction. Paul says, follow me, stand firm, realizing that those who oppose the cross are going to meet a different and uh, terrible end, eternal destruction. Their rejection of Christ, as the Apostle Paul, uh, Peter says, brings upon them swift destruction. The street thereon is a dead-end street. Now, what are these enemies of, of the cross like? Well, it says their God is their belly or their stomach. As their life is headed for destruction and it runs through fleshly physical appetite. They find all their happiness in what they can gather and consume, which leaves them serving another God. There are no atheists. They serve another God, their own belly. R. Kent Hughes puts it graphically, they are digging their own graves with their teeth. And where does it lead? It leads them to glory in their shame. Now, it's a word play, but it's a pretty apt description of our age, if we're honest. What, a shame, what's, what is shameful has become the very thing about which they boast. What they do with their shame, they glory in it. By indulging, they actually exalt in the shame of their indulgence. They talk about their sins, they flaunt them, and their selfish consumption is actually a point of pride for them. And it's shameful. You glory in what you delight in, and for them, it's shameful. Finally, number four, they set their minds on earthly things. They are preoccupied with themselves, consumed with clothes, food, houses, vacations, bank accounts, popularity, whatever it is. You go on and on and on. They are consumed what happens to them from birth to death. All that's in between. Live only for the present. And what I want you to see is that for Paul, this conduct, what we just read, is in stark contrast to believers. Against the pattern of his life and uh, what all he said in Philippians. And what does the contrast say to us? It says, as a Christian who is no longer an enemy of God, why would you live like one? Why would you continue to live like an enemy of God if now you are at peace with him? I think the logic is something like um, the story of the prodigal son where he goes away and comes back to the father and it's like him, in the morning after the big feast, he goes to the father and says, hey, can I have 50 bucks? I want to go down to the local pigsty to play with the pigs, um, and I need to buy some food. You know, it's, that's the kind of logic. It's insane. Friends, stop striving to make peace when you have already made peace with Christ. 
And it perhaps does us well to ask the question, are we different than the enemies of the cross? Are our lives distinctly different? So in short, instead of self-fulfillment, if you think about the book of Philippians as a whole, if we are preaching through it, instead of self-fulfillment, which the world says, consider the interests of others. Lay down your life for other people. Instead of glorying in your shame, glory in the cross of Jesus. Instead of setting your mind on earthly, present concerns, set your mind on things above, as Paul says in Colossians 3. And that's where he goes in our text as well. All right, so number one, you're not alone. Number two, you are no longer enemies. And he contrasts now the destiny of those enemies with the destiny of a believer with number three, you are not hopeless. That's the last certainty I see. You are not hopeless. And that's in verses 20 and 21. And Paul gives us four reasons to hope. I don't know if you came in feeling hopeful, but here you have four solid, grounded reasons to have hope this morning here in these two verses. Look at verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul uses the conjunction, but in contrast to those who indulge merely in the present. Not so with believers. Our citizenship is in heaven. We live in light of a future hope. Paul says you are citizens of a far-off country and you should reflect that country. Your identity is now defined by a home that you've never seen or been to. And it's heaven. Our first reason to hope is that our satisfaction, our joy, our identity, our status are no longer determined on earth. Not at all. But they're determined by where we are going by our eternal destiny, which is one of joy. And what this means is that you and I do not need to frantically squeeze out of life everything as if we can miss out. It means that the best is yet to come. It also means that we don't have to attempt desperately to escape sickness, frustration, pain, grief, suffering, and sorrow in order to live a full, hope-filled life, a joyful life. Paul's example of that is, is so clear. That's the first reason. The second reason is that we eagerly wait for Christ to return. And that comes, it comes also with that, our salvation. He is our Savior, the one who can deliver you from darkness once and for all. What a blessed hope. And what will happen when he returns? Look at verse 21. He returns who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. By the power that enables him to even subject all things to himself. So third, he will transform your lowly body to be like his glorious body. The word lowly here simply means humble. That is a body of humiliation. Paul's not speaking about our nature as corrupt, as some of the translations imply. The point the Bible makes here should bring us immense hope. For believers, Christ will transform our earthly body into a body of glory. So knowing Christ, think about it, literally means you will be conformed into his likeness. Like Jesus' body, our body will be free from all decay and weakness of this life. And there's hope in that. No more pain, sickness, disease, hunger, decay, death. 
No more chronic pain. It is death to life. It is humiliation to glory. It's Philippians 2 all over again. Christ's power makes it possible, and that leads to our final assured hope. There at the end, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself, Christ can transform us because he has ultimate power over everything. Believer, your ultimate transformation is in keeping with the power of the resurrection and the even, a key word, even to miss, or uh, that we could easily miss in our verse. It is in keeping with the power that enables Christ to subject all things to himself. So our confidence and our hope rests on the uh, unquestionable fact that Christ is the one who will have the last word. He's the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord, Philippians 2. And this Christ is going to make us whole, restore, heal, transform us by the power and skill that he is using to subject all things to himself. Friend, there's hope here. You come in hopeless, you go out with hope. Don't give in to the hopelessness. This really should bolster and shadow, shatter all of our doubts. Hope in Christ's power. It renews our hope because we are pilgrims in this world. You are a foreigner, an exile. So don't feel the pressure to put down roots. As Hebrews says, we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. A city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. I remember several years ago uh, listening to Carl Truman giving his opinion about something in the U.S., something political. And uh, afterward, he said something about his status as a foreigner allows him to interact politically different in the U.S. Because he's just not that invested. Uh, It allowed him to be objective in America. And I think that's a little picture of how we should view ourselves as strangers on earth. We are foreigners, and that should give us the perspective of being honest and caring without making this earth or our country our home. I like how Spurgeon put it, we are simply passing through this earth, and we should bless it in our transit, but never yoke ourselves to its affairs. And it's not just one's country, It's also our earthly comforts, to which perhaps we become far too attached. So here's my question. What thing, if it was taken away, would cause you or does cause you to lose hope? I mean, you are down when this thing is threatened for days. Perhaps we've grown too comfortable, too attached And as citizens of heaven, them, let loose. Set your minds on things above. Find our hope in a secured future as pilgrims going through. There's a hope-giving truth, not only that, but in the fact that we do wait for Christ to return. Are you earnestly waiting for Jesus? Do you long for Jesus to come back? Press on, keep running, stand firm, longing that he will one day Come back and remove and make all things new. You're tired of all the devastation around you, relationally, 
politically, all of the problems we see, Jesus will come back and make all things new. And we will be transformed. Believe the promise that when Christ comes again, he will redeem, fully redeem your broken body. You can count on it, even on the days when it doesn't feel like it. And we have a powerful Savior. Trust that God is in control. He's powerful. Set your hope in him, in that. So do you know this hope and have you found it? Because it's a blessed hope. So think about what's overwhelming you or stealing your joy or leaving you feel hopeless. And maybe even later today or whenever, take a moment and think about those things. Maybe even write them down. And then ask this. Which of those things falls outside of Christ's control? Which of those things falls outside of everything? Christ is in control. They, those lists, are powerless in the face of the power of Christ. And we wouldn't dare say otherwise, but how often do we live that way? Now remember what we said at the beginning, as citizens of Christ's kingdom, we stand firm in the Lord. Well, how? Well, you cannot do it alone. You are not alone. You're no longer enemies. And the final point, you are not hopeless. So stand firm thus in the Lord. Well, the people of Britain um, thwarted Hitler's invasion, as history obviously says. The world is completely different because they stood for firm. The British victory in the Battle of Britain was de decisive, but it didn't always seem that way. But ultimately, it was defensive in nature. They defended against the onslaught of bombs. Much like our battle as Christians. Now, unlike the Battle of Britain, our victory is certain. But right now, you and I are called to keep fighting, stay in the war, live to fight another day, stand firm today. Now, weeks before the terror bombings, Churchill would say this. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France we shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. I wonder, just a room this large, if there are some here that you're just on the verge of giving up. Rest in what you've seen and heard this morning. Don't surrender. Stand firm in the Lord, knowing that ultimately, as we're about to sing, Christ is the one who is holding fast to you. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We need you as our hope to go out and to stand firm in the gospel. So I pray that you would strengthen each one this morning. May this text bolster our standing faith and standing firm in the days ahead and remind us that we are not alone. We are no longer enemies and we are not hopeless. Thank you, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.